two years ago, two years ago exactly, as of this very weekend, I entered your kingdom. Wonderful, you as a church have called me, and so in a sense, had called me to this country. And so on the first weekend of August 2020, I got off the plane with my, with my family, and we stood at, at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., as serious-looking security guards bellowed and, and herded us by nationality. I, I'm sorry, which line? I mumbled nervously. Yeah, yeah, we are all together, but, but not all here might be considered worthy of that more quickly moving line. For our family of five had four navy blue passports with eagles on the front cover. Four new passports sparkled with the fittingness of that efficient US citizen's arrival line. But one well-worn passport was maroon in color and had no eagle upon it, and the tattered non-US passport was obviously mine. Accordingly, when the border protection agents caught a glimpse of it, and me in his line, his eyebrows rose as those aforementioned eagles, as if to say, what possible evidence do you have for this line? But, but when I quickly reached inside my passport and gripped onto my, my new little green card, soon all was smiles and welcome. I was worthy of my calling, worthy of your kingdom. And yet for me, that hadn't actually always been the case. For funnily enough, exactly 10 years before that, almost 12 years to this day, in exactly the same airport, having been called to America by a different church, I was considered unworthy. Indeed, at first, even condemned. For on that first weekend of August 2010, I stood alone in that very same airport, and when I got to the front of the line and produced no little green card, but rather a file of evidence for a temporary two-year religious work visa, the border protection agent, for some reason, was unhappy with it. And after misreading my paperwork, rather alarmingly, I was moved to the deportation area. And so for three worrisome hours, I sat, essentially condemned with suspicious-looking characters and, and delinquent thugs and, and one foreign man who was oddly arguing that his wife was not pregnant and that they weren't planning to have a baby on U.S. soil despite the fact that she was evidently nine months with child. And so, albeit briefly, I was considered unworthy of my calling her, unworthy of your kingdom, and worthy only of condemnation. What makes one worthy of a kingdom? What makes another worthy of condemnation? For you as citizens like me, these are key questions, but perhaps for you, they, they seem rather irrelevant because you don't even ever plan to move on from exactly where you are now. But what if you had to? What if actually you had no choice? What if you had to leave this kingdom behind? What if there was another kingdom beyond your work days here and a kingdom even greater than the United States? I know that for some of you that might be hard to picture, but what if there was a kingdom 
truly blessed by God, an eternal homeland to which only his people were called, what would make one worthy of that kingdom of God? What would make another worthy of condemnation? Well, as Paul begins his second letter to the church of the Thessalonians, as Paul starts this letter in earnest in, in verse 3 here, it is those two questions of worthiness that are clearly in his mind. Indeed, I wonder if you noticed that as Haley read our passage for us. Uh, if you didn't, or if you've closed your Bibles, please do open them again uh, so that you can see that. Well, please know that there, both in verse 5 and verse 11, that, that Paul is praying that these Christians in the first century Greek city of Thessalonica might be considered worthy. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul told them, live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. First Thessalonians 2.12. And here is this idea again. For look with me at verse 5. Paul thanks God for evidence of God's just work in them that considered them worthy of the kingdom of God. Likewise, if you look at verse 11, Paul prays that God might continue to make them worthy of their calling to that kingdom. And so again, what is it? What is it that makes one worthy of the kingdom of God? Whether you are someone here who looks forward to that, that, that forever kingdom, or, or someone here who, for the first time, perhaps in their lives, is beginning at least to entertain the possibility of a kingdom beyond this broken one, what is the passport or the paperwork that you are planning to present at the end? What should give you confidence that you are in the right line now? And if you find it, indeed, if you, if you found yourself, if you found yourself to your great surprise before a, a border agent of eternity this very night, with God's glorious kingdom just a few feet away, with its light creeping under those secure doors, what evidence of worthiness would you produce? Just like the Thessalonians here. What should you and I be looking for in our own lives and just like the Apostle Paul here, what should you and I be praying for in the lives of others? Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul highlights three pieces of evidence, three indicators of worthiness for God's kingdom. Accordingly, if you're one of those people who gets rather fidgety without headings at this juncture, you may scribble down, considered worthy of God's kingdom. And if you also really want a second, a subheading rather, uh, under that uh, heading, you can write down citizens who are assured, that should appear on the screen, who is considered worthy of God's kingdom. Uh, firstly, citizens who are assured. Paul says in verse 5, this, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. But, but what is this evidence? Well, to work that out, obviously, we have to look back up through the passage and to Paul's opening paragraph of thanksgiving. And there, as I've just said, we discover that the first piece of evidence is assurance. Citizens of God's kingdom are those who are assured. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of their belief in verse 10, and he, and he prays that that faith might produce more good work in verse 11. But in verse 3... 
Paul draws attention not merely to, to a past belief when they first heard Paul's testimony about the Lord Jesus, nor merely the ongoing presence of faith that revealed that the worthiness of their calling, but rather a wonderfully prospering faith. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And what does abundantly growing faith look like? Well, once we understand that, that biblical faith is not a, a kind of tingling from within, a, a mystical mood that, that some of us are just born with, or, or a love that kind of just ebbs and flows depending on the moment, but rather a trust in something outside of us, we come to understand that growing faith is a growing assurance in someone else and not ourselves. Indeed, Christian faith is obviously to have assurance in Christ. It is to have assurance of what Jesus did, that Jesus really did live in the first century, as is very obvious, that he really did die on a Roman cross as history acclaims, that he really did rise from a first century tomb as hundreds of eyewitnesses attested. And so it is to have assurance not only of what Jesus did, but who Jesus is too. That Jesus really was God because of how he lived. That Jesus really was Savior because of how he died. That Jesus really was Lord because of how he rose from the dead. And so growing faith is to have assurance that, that no matter how we may feel, no matter whether we, it, it, Jesus feels particularly close this morning, or, or whether we're kind of particularly feeling the, 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 the music today, that if we are trusting in what Jesus has done in the pages of Scripture, if we are trusting in his life for our righteousness before God, if we are trusting in his death for our sin when we meet God, then we can say, I am united to him and I am worthy of God's kingdom because he was. Faith that is worthy of God's kingdom is a faith that increasingly looks to him and not with him. In essence, it is growing, a growing underlying assurance of that wonderful hymn that we, that we sung earlier. My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die, his love not mine, the resting place, his truth not mine, the tie. You know, in the summer of 2010, when I first arrived at the U.S. Embassy in London, in my attempt to get my first uh, United States visa, I was pretty hesitant, and I had every right to be. For in 2010, I knew that, that getting a visa was no, no longer assured, for I knew that I had to prove my, my own worthiness. I knew that the officials at the U.S. Embassy could ask me anything about my past or, or my future, and they did. I had to prove that my degree in biology had nothing to do with biological warfare. I had to prove that my visits to Africa were to build schools and not to build friendships with, with enemies of the state. But 10 years later, in 2020, when I went to, back to the U.S. Embassy a second time, so that I could come here to work for Edgefield Church. I wasn't nervous about that interview at all. In fact, I was totally assured of my entry. Why? Well, because in 2020, 
my worthiness for your kingdom was no longer based upon my morality, but upon my marriage. Ten years on, I went to that same interview booth, and I, I smiled confidently and said nothing, but simply slipped my marriage certificate across the desk. For my worthiness for entry into your kingdom was proven by my unity to Sarah, an already worthy citizen. I had no fear. I was full of faith. I was no longer alarmed. I was fully assured. And friend, you can be too for God's kingdom if you stop worrying about your worthiness and instead unite yourself to the one who was worthy, Jesus, by trusting in what he has already done. Who is considered worthy of God's kingdom? Firstly and primarily, citizens who are assured. But secondly, second half of verse 3, also citizens who are affectionate. Citizens who are affectionate. For in verse 3, we we observe a second trait, not just present, but really prospering in these people. For verse 3, again, look with me. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Friends, how do we, how do we evidence a, a worthiness for the kingdom of God? What is one of the best indications today that you and I really are standing in the right line when it comes to the arrival hall of our tomorrow? Well, can you see here quite clearly, it is not just a growing private assurance that we hold that the passport of Christ in our hands, but it is a public, a growing public affection for our fellow citizens who will be there with us. Lives worthy of heavenly citizenship are evidence, not just in our assurance now, that when we die, we will will pass through those doors of heaven because we will metaphorically be able to flip open our new passports to the beautiful face of the Lord Jesus. But our worthiness for the kingdom of God is also evidence in our affection now for those who we will pass in the doors of this church. The second piece of evidence of the Thessalonians' worthiness was the fact that they were affectionate people. And please note, not just affectionate for their pets or their children, not just affectionate for the the marginalized of society, not just affectionate for, for just Christians in general, but affectionate for one another, for their fellow church members in that church in Thessalonica. And contrary to what we might think, that that, that is the evidence that, that Paul cites, which is really just a citation from Jesus. Or as we looked at a few weeks ago, John 13, 34, love one another, said Jesus. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Members of sports teams might have special handshakes. Members of certain society puts up flags in their, in their yards. Members of religious groups wear, wear certain clothes at certain times, but the love that you and I increasingly have for, for the people sitting next to you right now is the badge of true belonging. Which is obvious, really, For the kingdom to which you are ultimately attached is often proven by the citizens that you ultimately adore. 
Accordingly, if you have far more care and affection for white Americans in Nashville than African-American Christians in this city, maybe belong to this temporary city and not God's eternal one. If you're always willing to sacrifice time for your family but are never, ever willing to serve a sister in Christ who's just had a baby or a brother who's just come out of hospital, maybe your ultimate family is not heavenly. If you're marked by speaking so well of your unbelieving office colleagues but are marked by such disparaging and biting comments about other Christians who gather here, to what kingdom do you really belong? Now, my friends, don't hear me wrong, because our church is so good at this, so good at this in so many ways. Indeed, I could tell you of of Emily Riley making meals for for Matt and Bethany Gillen after their baby this week. Or I could tell you about Hunter Hardy caring for Eric Patton after his hip operation on Friday. Edgefield Church, we do a really good job of this, but let us work hard to increase that love, as Paul says. Not to limit our affection here to some people. Not to limit our love to the the practical over the spiritual. Indeed, perhaps you might choose to love someone here really well that you don't know, who's just joined the church, by loving them enough to, to read the Bible with them or a Christian book with them to help them to become more like Jesus. Or perhaps just like the Apostle Paul, right here you might choose to love someone enough by praying not just for a job or a spouse or a child for them, but that they might increasingly make themselves worthy in God's strength of God's kingdom and God's calling. In fact, what a wonderfully loving thing to do this week, to open the church membership directory, to choose a couple of of your fellow heavenly citizens, to thank God for their worthiness, verse 3, To ask God for more worthiness, verse 11, evidenced in a faith in Jesus that will be growing abundantly and a love for his church that will be increasing. And yet when it came to thanking God for the worthiness of his kingdom and when it came to asking God of a life worthy of that calling, the Thessalonians' advancing assurance and affection in verse 3 were not the only pieces of evidence that Paul looks to here with confidence. For far closer to the, the, this evidence of verse 5 is the final indicator of citizenship in verse 4. And so what will be the, the third and final piece of evidence of heavenly citizenship? Well, just before you look down at verse 4, what do you think it could be? What do you think it could be? Apart from faith and love, what do you think that Paul will, will, will draw next to help us to see these Thessalonians quite obviously belonged to God's kingdom. Indeed, if you, if you were to draw a picture of a citizen of God's kingdom on earth, what would you draw? In the same way that, that in a game of Pictionary, perhaps you might draw an English citizen with, a, with an umbrella and a, and a bowler hat. But then just to make sure that it was obvious to, to every one of your teammates in that game, you might finally draw a cup of tea in their hands. What is the crucial third and final indicator that helps everybody to see heavenly citizenship. Well, let's look at verse 4, see if you're right. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in 
all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. Who is considered worthy of God's kingdom? Citizens who are afflicted. Citizens who are afflicted. In May of this last year, in light of the ongoing outbreak of COVID-19, very sadly, this country saw a rise in attacks against uh, Asian Americans. Uh, And the evil justification for many of those attacks was the appalling notion that Asian Americans did not really look like true Americans. Accordingly, in a little township in Westchester in Ohio, one man did something that that went viral. For a 69-year-old Asian American man by the name of Lee Wong, stood up in a town hall meeting. And after speaking very passionately about his faith in the American system and his love for his fellow American citizens, Lee Wong then did something quite bizarre. For the old man began to take off his shirt. And when he had finished unbuttoning it, he says, this is my proof. Is this patriot enough? And to the stunned crowd present in the meeting, the old man then lifted up his vest to reveal horrific wartime scarring that he had endured for the sake of his kingdom. Friends, when it comes to a worthiness for a kingdom, when it comes to proof of true patriotism, we might question one's loyalty if it is simply speeches, but it is pretty hard to argue against scars. Likewise, some of the clearest evidence of worthiness for God's kingdom is seen in a willingness to suffer for it. And these first century Christians in Thessalonica knew that. In fact, they'd always always known that. For when Paul first came to Thessalonica with the gospel in Acts 17, as soon as Paul entered that synagogue and started to reason with unbelievers from the scriptures that, that Christ had to suffer and then rise from the dead, immediately affliction arose. The wicked men of Thessalonica were jealous. The religious men were were rounded up. And within minutes of trusting in Christ and so receiving their, their, their visas for God's kingdom, mobs were formed against them. And these brand new Christians were, were beaten and dragged before city authorities. They knew. They knew this citizenship came with cuts and this passport made you poor. And so their ongoing worthiness for God's kingdom was evidenced by their continued willing to keep suffering for it. I wonder, I wonder if that is how you picture a citizen of heaven on earth. If we were to study the websites of many churches today, I I doubt that we would draw that conclusion. In fact, if modern American church websites were anything to go by, then we might assume that you had to be a model to be worthy of heavenly citizenship. We might assume that the the heaven-bound men can be identified by their beautiful skin rather than bloodied scars. We might assume that the heaven-bound women could be identified by by perfect smiles rather than tear-stained faces. 
We might assume that the heaven-bound teenagers could be identified by their incredible popularity at school rather than sitting alone in the lunch hall. Friends, could it be that somewhere along the line we have drawn in our mind's eye inaccurate pictures of what true citizens of heaven look like here? Moreover, could it be that for many years you have so sought a suffering-free Christianity, a Christianity without any affliction from any unbeliever, that actually that has only caused you to become more uncertain of where you will be eternally. Friends, just like Mr. Lee Wong, what scars, whether physical or emotional or mental, could you share right here that would clearly show that you belong to the next world and not to this one? We may happily consider our assurance that is growing and our affection for other Christians that is increasing, but what affliction are you and I willing to endure such that we might be known as worthy citizens of heaven? Now, Christians are not masochists. I'm obviously not suggesting that that if you're not beaten up in the the playground of life or or dragged before civil authorities like the Thessalonians that that you're not heaven-bound. But I am suggesting that a willing suffering For believing in Christ's ways and words may bring about scars that bring you confidence. For isn't it amazing that that is essentially how Paul views suffering here? Indeed, it's so striking to me that even in the middle of praying for these Thessalonians, he doesn't actually pray for them that God might might bring an end to their suffering. But rather, Paul thanks God for the steadfastness that he's working in them through their suffering that might remind them of their worthiness. Paul kind of smiles at their scars, for he knows that what they are receiving in this present fleeting kingdom for God is only proof of their worthiness for a future eternal kingdom with God. And so that... That is what worthiness for God's kingdom looks like. That is how you and I show ourselves to be be worthy, just like the Thessalonians did. And that is how you and I should pray for worthiness in one another here, just like the Apostle Paul. But what about the counterpart uh, to all this? If assurance in Christ and and affection for other Christians and affliction for God's kingdom revealed the, the worthiness of the Christian's calling and the justice of God as he worked in his people through the prayers of others, what does the justice of God look like for those who are rightly considered not worthy of his kingdom, but rather his condemnation? Second major heading this morning, more briefly, considered worthy of God's condemnation, considered worthy of God's condemnation. If you look down with me to verse 6 onwards and to these very somber lines, you see that in the same way that there was a a kind of vertical and horizontal evidence for those who are worthy of God's kingdom, that likewise there was kind of vertical and horizontal evidence for those who are worthy of God's condemnation. 
And what was that evidence that Paul brings to light here? What were the identifying marks of, of some people in that city? Well, firstly, and horizontally, as seen in verse 6, some afflicted uh, the, the good news of, sorry, the good people of God. They no doubt were the able men and women of, of Acts 17, those who financially dragged believers through the courts and, uh, and those who physically dragged believers through the streets. Christians were, were marked by their love for one another. They greeted one another with a holy kiss. But there were some who were marked by hatred for Christians, who greeted Christians in the street with a horrifying kick. In their horizontal life, some sought to afflict the good people of God. But secondly, in their vertical life, also seen in verse 8, some also ignored the good news of God. Christians in Thessalonica uh, believe the gospel, verse 10, that they listened intently to Paul's testimony, that they saw themselves as deeply unworthy of God's kingdom without the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they gathered week after week afterwards as a church to hear more about the wonderful news of their Savior. But some people, some people in that city stuck their fingers in their ears when Paul came and spent every Sunday morning afterwards just on the golf course, hiding away from the message that was proclaimed. And Paul explains that it will be these people, these people who afflict Christians and ignore Christ, who will be found wanting in the eternal arrival hall. For one day, their luxury jet plane the jet plane of their lives will hit the runway and they will reach their destination. And as they line up at the border of God's kingdom, they will know then that they are unworthy to come in. And so by means of, of, of kind warnings to unbelievers in Thessalonica, who, who may have overheard this letter, but primarily by means of encouragement to believers in Thessalonica who, who wondered whether this was all worth it, and no doubt wondered what would happen to these people who, who beat them in the streets and, and made their new lives utterly miserable. Paul describes the just judgment of God again. But this time from the vantage point of those who will be condemned rather from the vantage point of those who receive the kingdom. So what will happen when it comes to God's condemnation? Well, firstly, Paul draws attention to the fact that King Jesus will arrive. That's my first subpoint under the second heading. King Jesus will arrive. In verse 7, Paul encourages these, these afflicted Thessalonians by reminding them of the time when verse 7, when verse 7, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The first thing that will happen when it, when it comes to the just condemnation of some is that the authority figure who was invisible will suddenly be made visible. Indeed, the word here at the forefront of Paul's mind, which he will speak to later in chapter 2, is the word parousia, which is a word that, that signified not just any old arrival, but rather the arrival of a coming king and judge. And so one day, says Paul to the Thessalonians, one day the kingdom for which you are worthy will be inaugurated, with the king's arrival. One day the king who waits at the doors of heaven will burst through those heavenly doors and will judge those who have trusted God's word and also those who have not trusted God's word. 
However, if you look carefully at verse 8, if you look carefully at verse 8, and the description of what some have not done, oddly, can you see there that Paul does not use the word trust? Rather, Paul uses the word obey. Can you see that there? Condemnation will come for some because, verse 8, some have not obeyed the good news about Jesus. And the reason that Paul uses that word is because the verb obey here is a word that also can mean answering the door. Accordingly, if someone knocks at the door of your house, you have a choice about whether to obey their knock, whether to get up from whatever you're doing and to to let them in. And it was clear that while some in the city of Thessalonica had opened the door of their hearts to the gospel and had therefore wonderfully gotten to know God, verse 8, as they had invited Christ in, that some still did not know God because they had not opened the door to the gospel. They had not obeyed the knocking Lord Jesus, but had rather kept him out. And Paul reminds us here very starkly that nobody can do that forever. For whether or not one opens the door to Christ or or, or whether or not someone pretends that, that his knocking is too faint to hear or that they are in the middle of something far more important or that they will just answer the door in a few years' time, the king will arrive. Indeed, whoever you are this morning, at some point you will see the Lord Jesus Christ whether you open the door of your life to him now or not. The question is not, is he really knocking loudly enough? The question is, will you answer the door? And let me tell you, it is far better. It's far better to open the door to him now as savior than it is to have him barge through the door later as judge. Indeed, perhaps, perhaps that is what someone here most needs to be reminded of here today. That King Jesus stands at the door and he knocks And he patiently awaits your obedience to the gospel before he will take the door of this unjust world off its hinges. The king will arrive. The king will arrive. But secondly, what will King Jesus do next? Well, secondly, King Jesus will avenge. King Jesus will avenge. The evidence of the righteous judgment of God will be seen in him granting a kingdom to some, but will also be seen in his condemnation of others. For when Jesus arrives, a great reversal will take place. Can you see that there? As the kingdom of this world is is basically turned on its head, as those who were afflicted will find relief, verse 7, and those who did the afflicting will find no relief, verse 6. Indeed, in verse 8, as we, as we read the sobering words that the loving Lord Jesus, that the most loving man who ever lived will one day do what he said he would do. That the verse 8, when he comes, he will come in fire and he will inflict vengeance on those who have ignored him and brought great pain on those people that he loves. Indeed, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And as someone who very quickly brings to mind certain friends and certain family members headed for this state, friends, I, I take no pleasure in, in these words. 
these words are sad. And none of us should hope this for anyone. And yet they are still words, just like the rest of Scripture, that we must let sink in. Indeed, all of us, all of us must let them sink in. Firstly, and obviously, we must let them sink in. We must, if we are those who have not yet trusted the Lord Jesus. Friends, if you've come to believe that you will not be condemned at the end because you believe that you're just really not that bad and that Jesus is just a nice guy anyway, please let these words of God land. There was one experienced prison chaplain wrote to every single London convict in 1828 who was flippant about their crime. Men are too apt to flatter themselves that God will not be so severe as he has threatened. This only hardens men in sin and makes them boldly venture upon damnation. This is to represent God as not terrible in judgment. Let a just fear of God's vengeance have its proper effect on you. But secondly, just like the Thessalonians, others of us here must also let these words sink in if and and when we are oppressed for our faith. For can you see how a deeper meditation upon this truth will not only make us more willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus, but will make us far less prone to retaliating against those who hate the gospel and make our lives very difficult? Friends, how could verse 8 help you when dealing with with a fellow colleague who's just always chiding you about your faith? How could verse 8 help you with a troll on Twitter who, who, who's always mocking your tweets about Jesus? Or as you read the news of Christians all around the world being put to death for their faith, how could verse 8 help you? Brothers and sisters, the, the desire for justice is right. It is right. But, but if the Lord Jesus could be unjustly pinned to a cross and yet patiently wait for that day of justice, then maybe you don't need to fire off that email. Maybe you don't need to seek revenge now. Because one day, very soon, King Jesus will arrive, and King Jesus will avenge. But finally, as we close, what will Jesus do then? Well, if we look finally to verse 10, we will see that when Jesus administers his justice he will be glorified by the citizens of heaven. When Jesus comes on that day, when Jesus wonderfully rights every wrong, he will be marveled at by his saints. And as Christians who long for justice, and hey, all the injustices that we see all around us now in this broken world, one day you and I will be a part of that cheering, a perfect justice revealed. And yet at that moment of justice, where will Jesus be in relation to those who have rejected him and have wounded his people in this life? But friends, what is the real essence of condemnation here? How does God show his justice supremely in this passage? Well, I believe that it is supremely shown in what Jesus does finally. For the Jesus who will arrive, 
And the Jesus who will avenge is also the Jesus who will go away. Final point this morning, King Jesus will go away. King Jesus will go away. I wonder, I wonder what you would say is the most frightening aspect of Jesus here. As we read this passage, it's perhaps very tempting to think that it is the, it is the Jesus of verse 6 who will repay with affliction. Or the Jesus of verse 7 who will come with mighty angels. Or the Jesus of verse 8 who will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. But actually, actually I think it's the Jesus of verse 9 who can you see will eventually move away from the presence of those who have ignored him. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Friend, listen. That the most solemn picture of God's condemnation is not finally revealed in the sight of Jesus' face, but in the sight of Jesus' back. Because in his justice, eventually Jesus will give those who have rejected him and his people and give them exactly what they have most desired. Life without him and life without his people. His justice will be revealed in his going away. Just as some people have sadly asked for all their lives. His just condemnation will be supremely seen in the absence of his presence. They will live away from the presence of the Lord Jesus, the, the, the giver of every good thing away from the great healer of every sickness, away from the great comforter of every sorrow, away from the great provider of that heavenly feast one day. For one day, Jesus will stop knocking at your door. And after he has come in and justly punished for all sin, he will walk away from those who he did not know. And that is exactly why Jesus spoke of hell as a place of weeping and grinding of teeth and not a place of howling and pain. Because the horror of hell is not ultimately that the pain contained within it, but rather the regret that rings out every day for those who decided not to obey the gospel and open the door. The Christian will be with Christ forever. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. For those who are assured of Jesus' work for them, for those who have shown affection to his people, for, for those who are, who are willing to be afflicted for his sake, they will weep no more. They will wonderfully enter in as, as citizens of the house of Zion. But the one who rejects Jesus now will very sadly be away from his presence and that feast. One day, everyone will line up at the arrival gate. The arrival gate that really matters. Will you be considered worthy of the kingdom? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are 
sobered by your words. And yet we recognize that they are your words and not ours. And Father, we know that you are just. You are just in your judgment. And yet we see a dividing line that runs through all history, through our country, through our city, through this building right now. And so, Father, we pray that all here might be considered worthy of your kingdom when your son shall come again soon. And Father, we pray that we, that we who have accepted Christ will be willing to suffer for that kingdom, remembering that Jesus will repay. And we pray that you'd help us to love one another here, remembering that we are fellow citizens. But Father, above all, we ask and pray that we would be confident of our worthiness because marvelously you sent your son for a first time in our place. And so would you help us to keep trusting in him, we pray, until he brings us home.